we emphasize the new covenant as superior to the old covenant. And the, there are many areas where this superiority is found. As we have seen in the old covenant, it was only forgiveness of sins. In the new covenant, it is forgiveness of sins plus overcoming and overcoming sin. In the old covenant, it was an individual walk with God. In the new covenant, is a fellowship where together we walk with God and we are in fellowship with one another, so we become one body. All this was not possible in the old covenant. And there are many things like, like that. But one other area is family life. In the old covenant, it was not at all important how your relationship with your wife was. And we see many examples of that. The very first book written in the Bible was the book of Job. Job lived around the time of Abraham, long before Moses. And Moses wrote Genesis. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. So if Job lived before Abraham, it must have been the first book of the Bible written. Nobody could have written all those detailed conversations in the book of Job if it was written a hundred years later or five hundred years later. Because Moses lived about five hundred years after Abraham and Job. So in the very first book of the Bible, the most godly man on earth, God himself gives a testimony to the devil, have you seen a man like Job? But his relationship with his wife was his wife was not at all spiritual in the beginning anyway. In fact, his wife at one time, when she saw all the suffering Job went through, told Job to commit suicide. Imagine a wife who tells her husband to commit suicide. God's let you down, he, she says. I mean, if I were to paraphrase her words. You lost your children, you lost your property, you lost everything. Why do you want to serve such a God? Curse God and die. Well, how can Job die? Only by committing suicide. So, the very first example of a godly married man in the Bible, whom God himself praised, he didn't have a good family life. Now, I'm not saying that uh, one must have a godly woman. Sometimes, unfortunately, some godly men do not have godly wives. John Wesley, one of the godliest men that Christian Christianity has ever seen, he had a very ungodly wife who troubled him all the time and like Job's wife and Job's wife at least repented I believe later on because she had ten sons and saw how God did things in the end but John Wesley's wife just left him finally. So I'm not saying that if you are a godly man you will have a godly wife. That's not my, my point. But if you're a godly young man not yet married then you should seek God earnestly that you marry a godly woman because you must have a godly home and it's very difficult to have a godly home if one partner is not godly. And when you read about other people like the people listed in Hebrews 11, Abel, I don't know anything about his wife. And uh, Enoch, I don't know what his wife was like. Different people mentioned there some wives we know, it says Sarah was a godly woman, Abraham's wife. 
But some of the others, I don't know. The man was a godly man, but how their wives, for example, Moses. The only uh, place where we read about Moses and his wife is when they are having a fight with each other. In Exodus chapter 4, over the issue of the circumcision of the child. And finally, she did the circumcision and flung it at Moses and said, you're a husband of blood to me. Not a very good relationship. And so with many others in the Old Covenant, their children were not brought up properly, etc. But when it comes to the New Testament, it's very different. We are told husbands must live with their wives in an understanding way. 1 Peter and chapter 3. One Peter three and verse seven. A husband must live with his wife in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers are not hindered. So, in the new covenant, the way a husband lives with his wife is very important. You never find such a command like this in the old covenant. A husband must live with his wife as recognizing all his life, recognizing one thing, she is a weaker vessel. She's weaker physically, she's weaker emotionally, intellectually she may be clever, that makes no difference, but she's weaker physically, she's weaker emotionally, and therefore, because she's weaker, I must always remember that. Every husband must always remember that throughout his life. I am married to a woman whom God has made the woman a weaker vessel. Weaker doesn't mean unspiritual. Physical weakness has got nothing to do with spirituality. Emotional weakness, that means the woman cries easily, has got nothing to do with spirituality. The fact that man doesn't cry doesn't mean he's spiritual. So, But if a man doesn't recognize and make allowance for the fact, like you know, if you're traveling together and there are two suitcases to be carried into the flight, who will carry the heavier one? The husband. Why? Because he's stronger. Same way spiritually, we must be willing to take the greater burden, spiritual burden, and not allow the wife to take the greater burden. She's a weaker vessel in every area. I must recognize that if you want to be a godly husband. And I must show her honor a husband must show honor to his wife as an equal heir. That means they've got two, heir means thrones. Their thrones are on the same level. Her throne is not lower. Her throne is on the same level. Fellow heir means both your thrones are on the same level of the grace of life. She gets the same grace as you do from God. And if you don't follow these instructions, whatever husband you are, God will not listen to your prayer. Is it possible that many husbands, their prayers God never listens to? Because they don't follow these instructions in relation to their wife. They may have so much Bible knowledge, they may even be preaching in churches, but they don't give honor. It says you've got to give honor to your wife as a fellow heir.
There was no such requirement in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, they, in a sense, the Jews despised women so much that their names were not even mentioned. When you make a genealogy of ancestry, list of your ancestry, the Jews only put men's names. You know, there are, I'll show you an example of that. There are two genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels. One is in Matthew, which is the genealogy of Joseph, all the way up to Abraham. And in Luke, you have the genealogy of Mary, the wife of Joseph, Mary's father and father and all the way up to Adam. But the interesting thing in uh, in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy finally ends with Joseph. So his name is there. But in Luke's gospel, it's Mary's name is not even mentioned. It's an amazing thing. In Luke's gospel, it just says, uh, Jesus, as was supposed to be the son of Joseph, who was, and the word there should be, the son-in-law of Eli. Because the, his father is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> it's a very interesting thing <clears throat> that in the genealogy of Mary, her name is not even mentioned. So I'm just trying to show you how women were despised in the Old Testament. But they're given a place of honor in the New Testament. So I find that many New Testament husbands behave like Old Testament husbands. Now the wives also, it says in the same chapter, 1 Peter 3, in the New Covenant, a wife must be submissive, 1 Peter 3, 1, to her husband, even if she finds that he's disobeying the word of God. Maybe your husband is not so spiritual. Disobedient to God's word. You got to behave in such a way that you draw him closer to God without your speaking one word. It's amazing. They, they may be one. You can win them to come closer to God without speaking a word. We've always thought that it's by words that we shall bring people closer to the Lord and to Christ. But here it says, without a word, you can win them by your behavior. Like I said earlier, life that is followed by the word, and sometimes even when the word is not there, the life itself can draw people to Christ. When they observe, as your husband observes, your pure, respectful behavior. Respectful. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says the New Testament standard for a Christian family relationship is Ephesians 5, you know, wives be subject to your husbands, verse 22, as to the Lord. And the husband must love his wife, verse 25, like Christ loves the church. But I want you to see a little word in the last verse of that chapter, Ephesians 5.33. There are two words. One is love, 
and one is respect. Very important words. A husband must love his wife because the most important thing a wife requires is love. And every wife will say that. And the wife, it doesn't say the wife must love her husband, that's understood, but the wife must see that she respects her husband. Because the most important thing a husband expects from his wife is respect as the head of the house. So as a husband must concentrate on seeking to love his wife, not just with words. In a psychologist would say every now and then, tell your wife I love you and even to, from your office call her up and tell her I love you. Those are all insecure people who always need to be assured. It's not, love is not in words, it's in actions, it's in the way you, how did Jesus show his love? How did God show his love for us? Jesus didn't show his love for us by going around everywhere saying, hey fellows I love you so much, I love you so much. That's not how he showed his love. He showed his love by actions by denying himself. First of all, by denying himself and coming to this world. Doing dirty jobs. Doing what was necessary to make us better. Patient when he was insulted. That should have, maybe her husband should be like that. That's the mark of love. Love is patient. Supposing your wife is very slow at doing certain things. Okay. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, a good chapter to read to understand love. The first thing it says about love, love 1, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, the very first thing the Holy Spirit says, he's not speaking kind words. That's all psychology. Love is patient. Patient means you bear with the weaknesses and slowness of your wife or maybe the way she does things which bother you because that's not the way you were brought up or that you're not accustomed to that. Patience. See, if a person is exactly like you, doing everything the way you want it, there's no need for patience. You can be the most impatient man in the world and you'll be very patient because the other person is doing exactly the way you want everything to be done and speaking exactly the way you want them to speak. But patience is required when the other person is not the way you want it to be done. And, you know, many things that we are upset about in a home life are so trivial, unimportant. So what if it is done another way? That's not the most important thing in life. To have peace in the home is a million times more important than that thing must be done in the way I feel it should be done. Rubbish. A lot of husbands and wives lose peace about something like that. Love is patient. And that works both ways, you know. Husband and wife must love each other. And patience is the first thing. And patience is when it's tested whenever you see your partner doing things in a different way than you want it done. It's not sinful. I'm not talking about sinful things, in which case we must say, sorry, that's sinful. Somebody asks you to tell a lie. No, I can't do that. But I'm not talking about sinful things, but the way we do things, the way you run the home, the way you keep things, the way you keep your clothes, how tidy you are, 
unimportant. It's good if you're tidy. I'm not saying it's bad. But people are different. For some people, tidiness is even more important than honesty. I say honesty is far more important than being tidy. So, you know, there was a saying in the world, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, even if you remember that, remember godliness is first. Cleanliness is not superior to godliness. Godliness is first and godliness is patience. Love is patient and then love is kind. That even if you have to say something to each other about, say, uh, say, darling, I don't think that's the best way to do it. It must be said in a kind way, not in a rude way. Like, why in the world do you do it like that? I, uh, you know, many arguments between husband and wife always begin with, you always, you always, <laughs> it's not always, maybe sometimes, but it's exaggerated to, you always say this or you always do this. That means that is fixed in our mind. Love is patient. And I'll tell you, we are not going to get there overnight. I'm not speaking as an expert. I, I, when I got married, I was a very selfish, impatient man. I hope I've become a little more unselfish and a little more patient today. I'm not perfect, far from it. I'm pressing on to perfection. That I can say. Before God, I can say that I'm trying my best by the power of the Holy Spirit to press on to perfection. And my wife has to press on to perfection also with an imperfect man like me. It's two imperfect people whom God joins together in marriage. Don't forget that. God marries two imperfect people to each other and encourages them to help each other press on to perfection. That is true Christian marriage. Love is patient. Love is kind. And you would wonder in a husband and wife relationship, is there a place for jealousy? Verse 4, love is not jealous. Is there a place for jealousy in your marriage? Perhaps you feel your wife knows more than you about something. Or your husband is more accepted by others than you. So many things. Or knows more than you. Usually if a husband knows more, the wife accepts it. But if the wife knows more, that can be a problem for some husbands. Or some wives may want prominence. It could be various reasons why there's jealousy. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit has put that word there. There's, true love is never jealous. And I'll give you a proof of that. If you have never been to college, not graduated, and your son or daughter goes to college and graduates with high marks, will you be jealous? I'd like to know. If somebody else's child beat your child, <laughs> got the first rank, then there may be a little possibility of jealousy. But if it was your own son or daughter, and you're not a graduate, you're never jealous that your child has gone ahead of you academically. Why? There's only one reason, only one. Love is not jealous. You love your child. 
You're not, you're, your child can accomplish something fantastic which you never accomplished in your life. You're not jealous, you're excited. You will boast about it to other people. That is love. If you can't do that in a relationship with each other, that you, you ask yourself, can you love your partner like you love your children? I think most of us love our children. We deny ourselves many things for our children. The Bible says you must love your husband and wife first. It's one of the things I have to constantly teach in India because most parents in India, they love their children more than they love each other. It's probably true in Western countries too. And the proof of that is once all the children are married and gone, left the home, these old husband and wife are bored with each other. <laughs> they don't know what to do. And they always go and want to dump themselves in their children's homes and stay there because they are, don't have anything to do with each other. It's just the whole, their, children, their whole life was centered around their children. So they go and dump themselves on one child and then another child and another child and permanently that's it. They don't have a home of their own anymore. I'm not talking about just visiting them, which is a good thing, but I'm talking about where that is your life because they love their children more than they love each other. That should never be true in a Christian marriage. In a Christian marriage, you must love your husband and wife, your partner, more than you love your children from day one till the day you leave this earth. Whether your children are married or unmarried, that you will not, and that love means there's no jealousy. There's no, it says here, love doesn't brag, doesn't boast, doesn't even inwardly. See, bragging, I don't think we are so crude as to brag outwardly, saying, see, I can do this better than you. And those are five-year-old children talk like that. We don't speak like that. But this bragging can be an inward thing, which I may never say it, but it is an inward feeling. Ah, I can do that better. I'm more spiritual than my wife, or I'm more spiritual than my husband. I can do that better. It's an inward bragging. It'll destroy you. I'll tell you that. It'll destroy you. Pride is not, doesn't destroy you when it is outwardly manifest. If it's there inwardly, you're proud about something, where you brag over something inwardly, where you think, I'm better than this guy, I'm better than my wife or husband. It will destroy you. Everything that the Bible says is for our own good. Love is not arrogant. And arrogance is very often seen in the way we speak. I'm talking simple thing like a husband and a wife loving each other, that's all, and it's just describing love here like that. Love is not arrogant. There's no arrogance in the way you, many husbands are arrogant in the way they speak to their wives. Sometimes look down upon them. In India, it's terrible in a heathen culture. In a heathen culture, the husband is like a king and the wife is like a slave. Yes, in many, many, I've seen that in many village homes in India and that's unfortunate. We have one of the things we have to keep teaching to correct them, to bring them to Christian values. But even in countries that have had Christianity for a long time, there can be mistakes in this area where we inwardly brag and are arrogant in our attitudes. It says in verse 5, love does not act in an unbecoming manner. In other words, not in an improper manner. There must be always a respectful way in which we behave with one another. 
And this is a great verse. Love does not seek its own. I believe it's one of the primary marks of love. Like love is patient. You do not seek your own. You all, don't think. You always don't think always of how will how will that how will that suit my convenience. Think also in terms of how will it suit the other person's convenience. I, you're a very blessed husband if you have one who's always thinking of your convenience. Your if your wife is like that, I think many wives are like that. Many Christian wives. I think that it's the husbands who are more at fault here that we don't think more about our wife's convenience as much as our wives think of our convenience. Let's not seek its own. It's a challenging word that we can work on, our salvation, to improve our marriage. I will not seek my own. I will not be impatient. I will not speak in a rude way. I will not be arrogant. And it says here, love is not provoked. That means, you know, we live in a fallen world. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. I want to tell you, till the day you die, the most spiritual man on earth is not perfect. The Apostle Paul, who was probably way ahead of any of us spiritually, somewhere towards the end of his life, when he was taken to a court and he said something like I have lived with a perfectly good conscience before God and before men it was a true testimony the high priest who was the judge told the man sitting next to him slap him on his face and the guy slapped Paul on his face and Paul turned to that judge and said God will smite you you whitewashed wall this is the great Apostle Paul who taught about holiness and victory over sin. Slipped up. He was about 60 years old and it's not at the beginning of his Christian life. But the wonderful thing when he realized who he was speaking to. I don't know why. You know, there are many people who say that Paul's eyesight was faulty. He had limited he had a problem with his eyes because in Galatians chapter 4 he tells the Galatians I know you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me whom would you pluck out your eyes and give it to to somebody whose eyes are weak so it's probably because Paul's eyesight was weak he didn't know who he was talking to and he said it anyway I want to make allowance for that but still even if it is a child you don't speak like that to a child <laughs> whitewashed wall and things like that so he slipped up but the wonderful thing about him is as soon as he realized he apologized the mark of a great man is not that he never makes a mistake, but that when he makes a mistake, he quickly apologizes. I'm sorry. Very important. I am sorry. Three very important words that all husbands and wives must learn to say to each other. We probably need it till the end of our lives. We may not deliberately hurt our partners, but unconsciously, we may do it all the time because we are imperfect. It's like accidentally stepping on somebody's foot. We you know we travel in the crowded buses in India sometimes and it's very easy to accidentally stamp on the foot of somebody standing behind you. And what do you do? 
I've done that sometimes accidentally stamped on somebody's foot. I don't turn around and say, hey, I didn't do that deliberately. I say, I'm sorry, sir. I'm not trying to explain to him the difference between conscious sin and unconscious sin. That's not the place to explain theology to the man whose foot I stamped. I just say, I'm sorry. That's all. That's all that's required even in when we accidentally or unconsciously say things or do things in a home. It's amazing what can be accomplished by the words, I'm sorry. I used to drive a scooter in India. For 42 years I rode a scooter because gas was too expensive to drive a car. And I've known, in, you know, when you drive on a scooter, they're not, no particular, we're not under law in the roads in India. There's a sort of false grace in the roads in India where people do what they like. And people cut across you without showing any signal, no hand signal, no. And it's easy to, to collide with people. And um, I have collided with people sometimes, and some people have collided with me when they've, they've turned in front of me and I've hit them. And it was very obviously their fault. But the rule in, the, in accidents in India is whoever shouts loudest is right. So if, as soon as the accident is there, one person will start shouting loud and, <laughs> and you get into an argument. Now I know that law, which happens in India, so I've learned that that's not what I should do as a Christian. So what I do is, as soon as I, this thing happens, I know it's his fault. And I know he's going to now shout because he knows it's his fault. I say, I'm sorry, sir. Ah. Oh. His whole attitude changes. He says, oh, it's perfectly all right. <laughs> Even though he was the one who, who turned into my part. And there's no, there's peace. I mean, so what if there's a little dent on my scooter? I can get that fixed. But there's peace. Pursue peace with all men. Follow that rule at home in your mutual relationships. Don't be quick to find fault. Don't take into account, verse 5, a wrong suffered. Don't keep accounts of that. Don't keep an account. Like somebody said, love is a very poor mathematician. Cannot keep accounts. You know, a poor mathematician cannot keep accounts. Love does not keep an account of all the wrongs suffered. There's no memory. Ah, I remember on the 6th of August... 1999 you did this memory of all that the wrongs suffered in the past those are good mathematicians they can keep account love does not keep an account ask yourself I want to ask you dear brother sister we want new covenant marriages ask yourself one question do you have a mental record even if you don't write it down, of the things that your partner did from the time of your marriage. We cannot do anything about our memory. It is there in our memory. The evil that other people did to me is in my memory forever. But I have forgiven them. I live in my will. I don't live in my memory. When memory brings up something to my mind, I say, forget it, I'm not going to listen to it. 
You cannot avoid memory bringing up things to your mind. You cannot avoid the devil reminding you of things that happened in the past. Reject it. Don't condemn yourself because it came to your mind. You have no control over your memory. God does not remove our memory when we are born again. Even the filthy things you committed in sin when you are unconverted days and which you did after you were converted. Don't you remember them? Sure. I can remember the things I did 65-70 years ago before I was converted. But they are all cleansed in the blood of Christ. I don't have to bring them to mind. And if I can do that with my own sins, that when the devil reminds me of them, you did this. And I know I did this. I, I do what that great saint once said. I think it, I know it was sure it was Martin Luther or somebody. He was once sitting somewhere and the devil kept reminding him of one sin after the other that he had committed in his life. And he kept listening. And he said finally, that's not all Satan, there are a lot more. Make the list complete. And when you made the list complete, right across it, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed this man from all sin. That's glorious. Isn't that a good way to wipe out our past record when you're reminded of all the rotten things you did in your past life? To tell, tell the devil, you can make the list as long as you like. Even the things that you don't know. You don't know what went on in my thoughts. The devil doesn't know our thoughts. So there are a lot of other things, Satan, which are in my thoughts, which you don't know. Make the list complete. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me. You cannot condemn me. We, we love that. That our past record is blotted out. Even up to yesterday. Even if you slipped up this morning. And you confessed it. The blood has cleansed you. Why not treat our marriage partners like that? Your wife, your husband. That the record, the past record is blotted out. Never to be brought up at all. The Lord says, I will not remember, Hebrews 8.12, your sins and your iniquities. What a wonderful attitude. That's God's nature. And isn't, aren't we so glad that God does not remember that when I get to heaven, there'll be absolutely no memory of anything that we did in our past life. So one of the wonderful things, treat others the way God treated you. Treat your wife, your husband, the way God treated you. Not only forgive, be quick to forgive. One of the one sentence advice that I give to married couples, one sentence advice, many married couples, when I tell them, I give them this one sentence advice, be quick to ask forgiveness and be quick to forgive. I say that will take you through all your life and you'll need it all your life. But in addition to that, I would say, don't keep a record. Love keeps no record of wrong suffered. It doesn't keep such a record. So when we say so easily we love each other, it's not really love if you keep a record that when it's something comes up in your memory, you should reject it and never let it come out of your mouth. When it comes out of your mouth means it has gone to your heart. If it remains in your memory, it's okay. You have no control over your memory. God doesn't cleanse our memory. It remains. 
But when it comes to your mouth, it has gone to your heart. From the heart, it has come out through your mouth. You remind your marriage partner about something that happened where he or she was hurt. It's true. What is said is true. But you have repented of it. And your partner probably knows that you have repented of it. But why do you remind your partner about it? Just to make the person feel a little hurt. That's not our calling. If your partner is physically injured, you would try and do something to heal it. You don't deliberately hurt your partner in their body. You wouldn't take a knife and slash your partner's hand. Well, don't slash his heart or his mind. Words can be sharper than a knife, I'll tell you. And a knife wound takes time to heal. Words that go into the heart can take longer to heal. So be careful with this knife called words, sharp words. So in Christian marriage now, if we slip up, we ask God to forgive us, we ask our partner to forgive us and press on. And if we continue doing this, I believe our marriages can improve and improve and improve and improve to the point where our children, as they grow up, become teenagers and they see our lives and they get married and go, they will say to you, Dad, Mom, I want a married life like yours was. Oh, can you imagine a greater testimony than that? That your children tell you that? And when they tell you that, you know all the blunders and stupid things you did in your marriage. But thankfully you repented of them and you turned your life around and your children saw the best part of their marriage in your, when they came to their teenage years because you had worked on your salvation for 20 years. And thankfully they don't remember those early years because they were too young. It's a wonderful thing. Dear brothers and sisters, let's pursue a Christ-like marriage. There's a lot more that God wants us to have and the Holy Spirit will show us the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us. We don't speak as experts. We speak as fellow strugglers pursuing after perfection, wanting to please you in the way we live at home to be disciples at home. Help us each one to have godly marriages that we can be examples to others and to our children especially. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.